0: Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to Patriot to the Core Podcast. I'm your host, of course, Thad Forster, and this is episode number 53. The guest this week is Army Chaplain Justin David Roberts. He is the first chaplain that I've had on the show, and the interview actually went a different direction at, at first than I had planned on. I didn't understand what all he'd been involved with, all the casualties in his unit before they ever deployed with the suicides, And then, of course, they had a lot of casualties while they were deployed. The reason why I wanted him on the show initially was because of his film, No Greater Love. It came out in theaters back in November of 2017. And now with its DVD release coming out actually tomorrow, March 27th, I thought this was perfect timing to get this interview out there and to hear him talk about the film. No Greater Love depicts the combat deployment of the legendary No Slack Battalion, which is the 101st Airborne Division, through the eyes of our guest, Army Chaplain Justin Roberts. While deployed in Afghanistan, Justin decided to carry a camera to document the hardships his unit endured. He said the reason he did that that, is because he couldn't carry a gun as a chaplain. I didn't know this. So he carried a camera instead. Of course, he got permission. He captured not only the gritty reality of war, but also the incredibly strong bond that is forged between soldiers. So I'm looking forward to seeing this movie. He actually offered to send me a free DVD, and I said, nope, I want to purchase it. I want to support the cause. So I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. Well Justin, will you talk about the film or the documentary, No Greater Love, and and really what drove you to make this? Yeah, so No Greater
1: Love is just a documentary about my time in Afghanistan and the lessons that I learned from the soldiers that I served with. Uh, namely that behind every single act and valor is a selfless love. That's what drives people to commit those deeds. And so when I was an army chaplain chaplains can't carry weapons uh so I asked my commander if I could carry a camera and he said sure just don't get shot and so uh I said Roger that and um you know as I was going along I captured uh, a lot of these moments uh from the missions and uh what I saw was that you know behind all of these courageous actions that these guys were doing when I interviewed and interviewed them and I talked with them to figure out why they were doing those things, uh, what I saw was that it was always to help a brother out or a sister out. It was always to go and support somebody they cared for, uh, their brothers beside them. And uh, so that's why we actually named the film "No Greater Love." It's taken from John fifteen thirteen. No greater love has any person than this that they lay down their life for their friend. And uh, that's what we ri- witnessed, you know, in Afghanistan. And that's what became this film.
0: Did you have any resistance from the guys? And when you were taking, when you were videoing, where was, was it with the intention of creating a documentary later?
1: No. Um, at first we didn't have any resistance. There is no issues on that. Um, and I think it's important. I didn't have an idea that it was going to become a documentary. Um, you know, when you go into a deployment, you have no idea how it's going to turn out. And it's the same thing with documentary films. I mean, like it, you don't really know what you're going to get. So I figured it could become something. I just didn't know what. I just wanted to document what was happening uh, with my friends and, uh, you know, what we were doing over there. And so that way it wouldn't be forgotten.
0: What what year was this? Uh, it was uh, 2010 to 2011. So do you know now if guys can bring their own personal cameras?
1: No, I I I think that they have a new rule called the Justin Roberts rule, uh, not to do that.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean it's uh uh that I don't know. I think there was some issues that popped up with guys filming and shooting things that they shouldn't. And um that created a problem. Um I worked with my S2 shop and my commander, and I stayed connected with the PAO and the Chaplain Corps whenever I was putting this project together. So it's one thing that if you're going and you're going and doing something on your own, um, it's another thing if you're actually working with the team and just letting them know, hey, here's here's what I'm working on, and you know, you're not hiding it. Um, so there's a bit of a difference there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know my brother asked for a helmet cam for Christmas, the Christmas before he deployed, and my parents got him one, a nice quality one, and he used it a lot. And, yeah. of course, we didn't see any of the footage until after we got his stuff back later. But um, when I was writing the book, I would reached out to, um, I guess it was uh, what's public relations or public affairs or something there with, with, a, with a special tactics squadron, and they had told me that, personal helmet cameras were no longer allowed. And I don't know when that was, when they decided on that, but you know, you had national geographic doing the eyewitness war thing. And yeah, uh, of course they use some of Mark's footage for that as well. And then the other show he was on, but I can see how it could be a problem. Oh yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it all depends on if you're trying to do things in alignment with your team or if you're going rogue and just doing whatever you want. Um, so I just made sure I was keeping in communications with people, you know, and, and, as the project, you know, I knew we had a documentary, I think somewhat towards the end of the deployment because of, we captured so many stories and it was just such amazing stuff that, you know, these, these actions that these guys did were unbelievable. I mean, truly selfless, you know, amazing, courageous things. And, um, you know, it was at that point I was like, well, I'd like to do the interviews. And so I talked to my commander, command sergeant major, and all the guys who were involved. And those were the people that I interviewed. And uh, PAO was great. They gave us carte blanche on the military bases to shoot wherever we wanted and to interview whoever we wanted. And so it, I, it's weird because I don't I don't know how it normally works. Um, I just know my experience. But they were awesome. The The Army was awesome.
0: Well, we talk about your unit, which one it was, and and also I just thought of this. You talked about your own PTSD. Did that come from before a different deployment, or did it come during the deployment you were filming, or when did that happen? Yeah, it's a. I, I, to answer that one, I mean, it's like I'm not sure on the timeline on the
1: PTSD stuff and the depression. I mean, like uh, there's a lot of stuff that chaplains experience even before we deploy. You know, we had four suicides in my unit before we deployed. Uh, one that happened my second day on the job, another a week later, and then another couple of months later and a couple of months later after that. And, um, you know, some of those, it's it got pretty intense. I mean, actually having to clean up some of the remains after the second suicide. Uh, just me and the first sergeant. Mm-hmm. The uh, spouse actually had to pass through uh, the living room to collect up her belongings and the uh, people who removed the body didn't remove all of the remains. Um, and so, you know, it's things like that and then just life issues that are happening. Like, I mean, dealing with the death of a newborn child uh, in our unit and being there with that family and just countless counseling cases, um, and just life, uh, it hangs heavy on you. And and then deploying and then having, you know, the combat stuff happen and just, you know, the loss of friends.
0: Um, I'm not sure when to pinpoint all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's educational in itself just because I hadn't thought about this stuff back home that you have to deal with. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, like there was – I
1: remember one day um, we had a couple who just lost a – I think it was like a four-month-old – uh, to SIDS um, and four or five months old and I was sitting there on the ground hugging the soldier as he held his you know, uh, newborn who had just died because they give him some time to hold him and uh, sitting there holding him as he's holding his dead child and then th- I had my uh, senior chaplain who said, hey, you have a memorial that you have to get over to so You're gonna have to, you know, close up here as quick as you can, and I'll cover down here. And so I had to hand that that situation off to him, and then immediately turn around, put on my class A's, and jet over to do a memorial. And uh, I just thought for a moment about that day, and I was like, man, that that's a tough day. I mean, Mm -hmm. that weighs on you. It sticks with you. And then also having to do death notifications, um, telling you know mothers for the very first time, hey. Your son's not coming back. Um, those are the things I think that, you know, if you're a human being, it doesn't matter how tough you are. Unless you're a
0: sociopath, you know, that stuff's
1: going to stick with you.
0: And um, you carry that. What are some things that you can share that uh, every situation is different? I'm sure maybe there's not a good way to prepare, but what can you do to prepare for the death notifications?
1: I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think... Uh, You have to be really, really grounded uh, with your own heart and how you process loss, how you connect with people. I mean, because at that moment, you're just there for them. This is the last act of service you can give that fallen soldier. You know, so just as a brother, you know, you're doing that on his behalf or her behalf uh, for his family. And that I think kind of changes at least my perspective. Like I'm here to serve, uh, you know, that person who's fallen, um, to care for their family. And, uh, so, and to care for them just like I would my own mother, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that, that kind of just changed my perspective on it. To, it's like, I'm not just here to drop off a note. I'm here to care for a family member. And, um, I mean, it's like a, but how you process that afterwards? I mean, like I, I really had to do a lot of praying and, of course, just talking with my wife about, you know, what was going on inside my own head.
0: Is it one of those things where, when you, when you do leave the house, talking about when you've made the notification and you're then you're leaving the family's home, you get in your car, is it something where you just kind of sit back and take a deep breath and breath? It's like, whoa, you know, I'm exhausted. It just it drains you or you know, yeah, and- yeah.
1: I mean, that's the worst thing, I think. That's probably one of the worst jobs you can have in the military, but also one of the most, I think, honorable. I mean, because, I mean, it's something sacred that we do. Yeah. And it's the, you know, with the, um, I, I had a senior NCO with me one time who, uh, right after it, I mean, he just broke down in tears. Because the way it works is it's, you know, a person who's a couple of ranks above the person who's, you know, deceased, and uh, a chaplain. And um, it was a senior NCO who was with me this time. He he has, he's the person who has to say the first few words, you know, ma'am, we regret to inform you that uh, so-and-so has passed away, and then they go kind of go through a script. And the reason is because they don't want the chaplain to be the person who delivers the message first, because that's usually a person that they're going to have a lot of anger with or just cannot connect with.
0: Mm.
1: And so then the chaplain right after, you know, standing next to them and and then right after the chaplain moves in to provide care. And then uh, shortly after that care teams come in and there's, you know, a process for it. Um, But that's, that's the way it's typically done. And I don't don't know how to process that kind of stuff. I mean, I I think it's, you're going to be sad and you should be. We're definitely not bulletproof in that way.
0: Yeah, well, when the door first opens, how long before the family knows why you're there?
1: I think they they know the second they see two two people in Class A's knocking on their door, they know, and then they're just waiting for the punch.
0: Yeah, and, and I've been on that side, and yeah. I, I have to say that the, the the we had there were simultaneous notifications. My parents got one, and I got one, and and, yeah. um, and man, they handled it like just as good as I think it could be handled their demeanor, their tone. Yeah. The, the silence, everything. And it was probably perfect, I guess as good as it could be.
1: It's like, I mean, there's no good words, you know, like uh, in a situation like that, there's nothing that you can say that will make it better. Um, you can just love them and be there for them. Yeah. That's, that's it. So I think it's the, uh, it's the last act, you know, of honor that we get to render or the last care that we get to render to that fallen member. And um, I, I, I think that's something sacred, but it, it hangs on you. It, it sticks with you. So there's that's the the, the role of a chaplain. I think that, you know, it's, uh, it's something that is special, you know, about that job. And then. I had a buddy who was actually working in Arlington, and he told me he was doing roughly like I think three, four, sometimes five funerals per day. I was like, man, that would be hard. It's like what what that does to your soul. Yeah, has, be difficult. And of course, he's an incredible chaplain. Um, I think far better than me. <laughs> so to be to be able
0: to to <laughs> endure that, you know, um, that's God bless him. Yeah, he's rock stars. And then, you you know, you got to go home with your family. If you're you may have a, a, another your other life as a husband or a dad or, you know, something like that. You got to you got to function that way, too.
1: Hmm. Well, yeah. Then being being able to shift gears, you know, while going through uh, such incredible grief. But, you know, and he said that they they really try to keep a lot of levity in the midst of it. Um, but ever so often, something catches them. And uh, a family member says something or, you know, just something, and then he's grieving right with them, and he's going through those same emotions. And uh, so I think you just have to have a strong heart, you know, prepped up for something like that, not just chaplains. I mean, all, all service members, everybody has a different role that they're just taking on.
0: That's true. Yeah, they're all needed and important. Yeah. Well, let's talk about No slack. Uh, let's talk about the 101st Airborne
1: Division. Yeah. It's a, that was an um, infantry battalion in the 101st, and we deployed to uh, Kunar Province, uh, which is along the Pakistan border. And uh, that was actually my first unit.
0: So you talked about, in, in when you're describing the movie, you talk about y'all were not prepared for the challenges awaiting you in that terrain. Yeah. Will you share some of those challenges? Oh, gosh,
1: yeah. I mean, like, this is, you know, whenever you're fighting the enemy on their home turf, you know, they understand where the best spots are to ambush. They understand how to move, what their rat lines are, um, and kind of how to navigate that terrain, which is the Hindu Kush mountains. It's very mountainous. So the challenge with that is, is just, you know, our weapon systems can oftentimes be neutralized by the terrain. You know, because if they hide in the crevice of a mountain along the side or in a cave and they're, you know, in those great little hiding spots whenever artillery is falling or missiles are flying, they can make it out fine. And so then it becomes a small arms contest where, you know, us shooting at them and them shooting at us. And, uh, that's, that was the challenge for that deployment because they oftentimes had the, uh, the upper hand on the terrain side. And home turf side, mm-hmm. and uh, made a good fight.
0: Were you on foot quite a bit? I mean, what did, what did you have to to maneuver over there? Um, yeah, it's you have the choppers
1: would usually fly us into a high ground so we could walk down while another team was holding up, you know, Overwatch. Um, and we had MRAPS, um, you know, up armored vehicles, mine. Mm-hmm. Was, but the uh, problem is, is that there was a lot of choke points because of the roads there. So, you know, you got six, seven vehicles that are rolling out. And the first one is hit, and then the back one is hit. They've got you in, in a tight little spot just to shoot you up. And there was at that time there was an influx of RPG sevens, I think, the armor-piercing ones, and uh, those suckers were punching through. You know, the armor of the vehicles pretty well and taking off people's limbs and really injuring some people. They were well-trained. The Taliban fighters at that time were well-trained, well-armed, and uh, had good good knowledge of the uh, ambush tactics.
0: This is something I have no clue on, the uh, position of, of a chaplain. Where, where are you in the, I guess, in the convoy? What, <laughs> what part of it? And, and, and then you don't even have an, a weapon, so... Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, it was, I think a, a bit of a backstory on this um, might be helpful. And so, whenever I first arrived to the unit uh, in 2009, you know, the unit that I was attached to was the most suicidal battalion, one of the most suicidal battalions in the military. And uh, so, we had a string of suicides and a lot of suicide attempts and gestures. Uh, at least one every single week for the first six months. What What do you mean by that? Is that
0: the enemy suicide Uh, before we
1: deployed uh, back in garrison uh, our own soldiers taking their lives and or attempting suicide so with that being said yeah i apologize so this is before we even deployed we had all of these suicides uh we wound up developing a care program uh which was more focused on just connecting getting away from powerpoint presentations and getting into real conversations and talking Um, So with that being said, I went to one of my mentors at the time, First Sergeant Wright, who's now Command Sergeant Major Wright. I went to him and asked him how I should go about the deployment since I had never deployed before. And he said, Chappy, you know, if you really want to connect with the guys, then you need to at least go out with each unit at least once on a patrol or a mission and be near the front during major operations. So you can do your chaplain stuff if somebody gets hurt. And so I made that my mission for the year, to go out with each platoon at least once on a patrol and to be near the front during major operations in case somebody uh, gets injured or killed so I can be there with them in those last moments. And uh, so my deployment, um, I was bouncing around constantly uh, trying to meet that obligation. Um, and it wasn't trying to hot dog it, it was just trying to connect because what I saw was that any time I actually went out on a patrol with a unit, I would get far more counseling cases and having guys open up from that platoon. Whereas if I
0: hadn't have done that, they wouldn't have. You built the trust because you, I don't know, you you weren't hiding from them. You understood what they were going through, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it takes a little bit of proof sometimes before people will talk to you. And uh, for me not connecting meant that people were dying at that time. Not from bullets, but from suicide. And it's just as deadly. So this became something that wasn't just a nice thing to do, but it's something that became a mission critical thing to do.
0: You have to connect. How would someone know that you are a chaplain? What what do you wear on your uniform? Uh, I've got a cross
1: uh, that goes over uh, the the name tape. And so, you know, it was pretty identifiable.
0: I realized that Lots of people don't play by the rules, but are there rules in the like Geneva Convention or somewhere else that you don't kill chaplains? <laughs> yeah, they're not supposed to. Okay. Uh, but the, the way that they
1: thought about it at the time, uh, the Taliban fighters over there, it's a religious based, you know, culture. And so for them, their military leaders are also religious leaders. So whenever they would meet a chaplain, sometimes sometimes they thought that was the person who was in charge, um, and so they were like, "Finally, finally, we get to to meet the boss." And I'm like, "No, we're <laughs> not the boss." Um, but the uh, the way they also thought about that is, if you kill their religious leader, then you really hit the team, and you so they want a gun for that, and so uh, that that cross became a good set of crosshairs. Um, you know, but it, I didn't see that too happen too much with me. It's not like that only like one time did I hear that they were actually uh, talking about me over the radio, and uh, the chirp said uh,
0: that they were mentioning me. And I was like, well, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> what did they call you? Do you know?
1: I I don't know.
0: Wonder if they call you. I mean, I'm sure they don't use the yeah. word chaplain in their language. Maybe they do, but this is an imam. Imam.
1: Mm-hmm. That's that's a kind of the equivalent, but of course uh, for another religion.
0: Well, you, y'all lost several men while on this deployment. What was it, ten or seventeen? Seventeen. Man. Yeah. Um. One you talked about was Kevin Mott, Captain Kevin Mott. No, no, wait a minute. He he, survived. Mean, he, he yeah. survived, but it was crazy. He fell ten stories. Yeah, down a
1: mountain, and uh, was rescued by the PJ's who came in and picked him up, got him back to the States. And uh, he spent about, I think, like six months recouping through severe, severe injuries and then fought his way to come back to us before the deployment was over. And uh, he actually wound up becoming a platoon leader once he got back over one of the platoons that was one of the uh, lead elements in one of the larger operations in the Afghan war. Um, so... That that's American tough. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's uh, that that's ridiculous. But I mean, like that, that is just a, a perfect example of the uh, resilience that these guys have. You know, they, they will fight to do whatever it takes to come back to their guys. He had a perfect golden ticket to get out of the military, a perfect golden ticket to stay home and eat ice cream and play video games and do nothing else. Yeah. But he instead fought and fought and fought to come back to the very place that he was injured. So that way he could be with his guys and stand beside him in the next fights.
0: And, uh, that's what he did. That's incredible. Is he in the documentary? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. See that, that's, that's a big time motivating story right there. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like we had him,
1: um another person's story that we followed was a guy named Simmons whose brother was also in our unit and uh, his brother wound up getting killed by an RPG that had flown into a base and so he brought his he escorted his brother's body home and attended the funeral but even before he set foot on American soil he became determined to come back and take his brother's place in his brother's platoon and finish that deployment on behalf of his brother and that's what he did. And uh, there's the Saving Private Ryan kind of rule where if you're the last surviving male, you don't have to redeploy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but he was determined to come back. And when I asked him why, you know, why would you come back to this place? You know, he said, well, I lost one brother, but I had 30 other brothers I had to get back to. That That just broke my heart but also made me immensely proud. So what happened with him? Uh, he wound up uh, finishing his brother's deployment, made it home, and he's still serving. So it's story after story like that. We had several guys get injured, then they come right back to us. And then we had some who, you know, in the midst of trying to help a friend or save a friend's life, were cut down. But that is the nature of who these people are, and it's incredible that they will fight – to be beside you, even through immense pain and injuries, um, and they will fight and die for you if need be.
0: That is the definition of no greater love. Is this a twelve or thirteen month deployment? Twelve months. Twelve yeah. months. So this, some of these guys have the like the like uh, the captain Captain Mott was able to go home, recover, and come back mm-hmm. <laughs> within that twelve months. It's, <laughs> and it's that's crazy. Spent. Wow. Uh,
1: And so, I mean, it's, it's some truly incredible individuals and, um, you know, so it follows their stories of, you know, what happened over there, uh, some of the largest battles in the Afghan war took place during this deployment. Um, and you know, what happened during these battles and what were some of these people who are these, you know, beyond the uniform, who are these people as human beings what were they doing? And then, um, how we come home, you know, that journey home, which is not easy. And so the struggles that a lot of our service members face as they become veterans and uh, as they transition home.
0: What are some of those struggles, especially for some of these guys who have really seen some uh, some intense combat? What's it like for them coming back home? You know, it's different for everybody.
1: And so it's like it's it's hard to say, like, what's going to be the standard thing. But, you know, there's usually coming down from that adrenaline high. You know, if you're getting shot at every couple of days. Your system gets used to high levels of journaling. And uh, whenever you're coming back from that, uh, one guy, he said it was like, you know, driving 80 miles an hour, you know, for a year and then getting dropped into a room that's not moving. You know, it's just your system feels weird from it. Um, There's quite a few who struggle with anger issues and depression, you know, and um, just hypervigilance. You know, you're coming back from war. And so there's there is gonna be a good bit of a transition. Now, usually that kind of stuff just lasts about three months or so for most, but sometimes it can take longer. And then sometimes it can take a lifetime.
0: Well, I'm guessing with people like you, the work you're doing, and there's and there's a lot of other people trying to really help out with these veteran issues, is the is the the military I'm not sure if it's all branches or is it just the army or any branches really doing something to help when our guys and women come back from deployment to to adjust,
1: yeah, it's uh, it's
0: almost different for every unit, you know, what their care plan is,
1: and and whatever that UMT, a unit ministry team, what their care plan is. So it, it it's overall, yes, you know, there's there's a great infrastructure within the military, um, but there's always more that can be done. And so, you know, with suicide being the number one killer of our service members, I would say that we have a lot more to get done. And we have to start addressing that issue directly since that's the number one killer of our service members. That right now is the greatest threat that our service members face. And so we need to take some radically new approaches to how we solve this problem and how we provide care for Uh, Our service members, you know, right now, I mean, the typical approach is suicide prevention, which is PowerPoint presentations, but PowerPoint's not cutting it. You know, we've been at this for 16, 17 years now, and the suicide rate has consistently gone up and remained steadily high. But yet we keep on using the same approach to try and tackle this problem. And it's not working. PowerPoint cannot stop the suicides from happening. Um, It might save one life, but I would be radically surprised if PowerPoint presentations did. Um, We have to take more dynamic approaches. And so what we did with our unit is we started focusing on the avenues we knew what would work, which was uh, the guys who are talking with their friends about what they're going through are far, far, far less likely to kill themselves than the guys that are not talking and that are not connected with each other. So we focused on a relational model of pulling them together and then talking about whatever issues are going on inside that platoon, letting them direct the discussion because really at the end of the day, they're the most important people in the room, not myself, not leadership. It's them connecting with each other. And so letting them guide it, letting them come up with the solutions themselves, solution focused counseling, and then having them uh, come up with a plan, on if somebody is struggling with suicide how can they help and what i noticed is the second the alpha in the room you know the leader in the room amongst the guys not the the platoon leader not the necessarily the platoon sergeant mate sergeant uh, but whoever was a leader inside the group the second that he gave permission to the rest of the guys to talk about their issues saying like hey guys I don't care what you're going through, you know, I'm here for you, you better talk to me, I don't care if it's 3 a.m., you know, we we fight together, we die together, we're here for each other. The second one of those guys would give that permission for the rest of those guys to talk, that's the moment when it started for that group. And uh, so with our unit, I mean, we had, you know, one of the highest suicide rates in the military, four suicides, weekly suicidal ideations. When we got back, the expect from the deployment, and that was before the deployment. And when we deployed, we had serious combat trauma happen. You know, 17 KIA and 200 Purple Hearts out of an 800 man unit. And that's some tough times. Uh, when we got back, the expectation was we were going to have a higher suicide rate, more problems and issues. But instead, we had zero suicides and a 70 percent reduction in suicidal ideations. So it worked. Relationships work. It's, it can't information based like style of suicide awareness doesn't work because everybody knows not to kill themselves. You don't have to tell any new statistics. You don't have to tell them (laughs) any new data, any, any fancy new techniques. It's not going to work. You have to focus on the heart and making sure they're interconnected with each other. And that if there is a problem that they're actually getting help. Um, But the only way that you'll find that out is usually through their friends because most of the guys won't go to counseling on their own they're just not, they just generally won't. So, so that was our approach.
0: Yeah. Wow. Did, were you part of that helping to, I guess, implement that approach or to, yeah, it was, I called it what I did because,
1: um, I'm usually just the guy who sits in the middle of the room and then picks people's brains for ideas (laughs) and then puts them together. And so what I did is I just went to my first sergeant and command sergeant major, and uh talked to them as much as I could saying, look, you know, these fancy PowerPoint presentations don't seem to be working. What would? And uh, so I just took in and listened and listened and listened. And then that's when I put together Warriors Keeper, which is the name of that program. And uh, that's how I just consolidated by listening. You know, it's basically designed the way that I thought that they would want it to be designed. You know, a care program that's designed by them, essentially, um, and what they thought would be effective.
0: How and long has Warriors Keeper been been used?
1: I, I mean, it's like it was, it was being used by my unit when I was there. Um, it's been beta tested over at Fort Polk, but I didn't have – once I started kicking on to all this other stuff, um, I didn't have the ability to shepherd it. And when you're just a captain – You know, you you have your sphere of influence, but that only goes out so far. So my intent was to build the film up and then try to use the film to leverage awareness for this program uh, within the military. And then that's been somewhat effective. Um, But that's, that's my hope, is to continue beating that drum just to get awareness about it and to see if it can become consolidated into an official program. And it's pretty simple. I mean, it's just like battle drills for life issues. Most of the, our infantry guys understand what battle drills are. Like, how do you react to contact? You know, how do you engage the enemy? What's a consolidated plan, you know, with the platoon that if this happens, here's how we react. Um, but for life issues, you know, if you find out that your spouse is cheating on you, if you have a buddy who's struggling with alcohol, if you have a friend who's thinking about killing themselves, you know, how does the tribe care for these people? And how do we ourselves, if we're going through it, how do we care for ourselves?
0: Yeah, I'd imagine that not only is it helping with uh, the suicide rate, but just relationships and with your uh, spouse and family. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, um,
1: you know, having a plan for these types of issues that we experience in life is critical. And if you're a spouse who um, has, you know, a husband who is struggling with severe anger issues or an addiction, you know, that's going to radically affect your marriage and your family life. And it's, it gets tough, you know? So any kind of support and help we can give those service members is going to affect their spouses. It's going to affect their children. And it has, it multiplies, you know, the, the number of people that it blesses.
0: What about you? How have you, or did you, you know, deal with the struggles that you had? Or, 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 having, I, it's I'm still dealing with everything. I mean, it's, uh, I have an
1: incredible wife, um, who has been just a constant support through all of this stuff. But, um, you know, when I got out, I mean, it's like I, depression hit hard, you know, when I left the chaplain corps and the military, um, I didn't realize it at the time, but I mean, like, it wasn't that I suddenly became depressed it's just that I was so busy being a chaplain and working on all this stuff and being there for everybody. Um, whenever I pulled that away and I didn't have that thing to focus on, then it was just me. And, uh, that's when I was like, I started, had to, I had to start processing some of these things that I experienced and, um, still working on it, you know, but I'm, I'm doing good. I think, um, you know, every day is, uh, a way to step forward and kind of work on these things and process these things. But the film itself too was a part of that because yeah, it was a chance for me to really examine what I experienced and uh, to look at it from a lot of different angles and to find the hope in the midst of it.
0: Yeah. I figure so. I figure that was a um, labor of love type thing. Yeah. With it. What kind of feedback have you gotten?
1: I mean, it's, it's been overwhelmingly awesome. I mean like the, uh, you know, from, Variety, Los Angeles Times, New York Post, um, were 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, all of these different publications coming in. Movie Guide said it was one of the uh, most powerful, amazing documentaries ever made. And, um, all of that stuff was incredible. So it was like a, the best kind of reviews we could ever hope for, we got. But, what I think is this, I mean, I don't think it was because my first film was an, a, an ama- amazing directorial debut. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was like, I'm a Spielberg. You know, it at the heart of it, it was because they were reacting to the guys in the film and their interviews. I mean, I thought I did a decent job in putting it together. Uh, I had an amazing team. But really, I, I think it's because we just had amazing people that we pointed the camera at. And that's what everybody reacted to. And I, I think it's appropriate. You know, it's not that the film is necessarily amazing. The guys are amazing. The guys
0: are incredible. Their stories are incredible. Mm-hmm. And we were just a conduit. Yeah, I think there really is a, a demand for this type of thing and for um, stories of heroism and patriotism. And uh, and then, of course, this is has also, you've got that, and then you're addressing the, the depression and the, and the PTS and all that is yours. The only film out there right now that is like this.
1: Um, no, I don't think
0: so. I mean, like there is uh,
1: thank you for your service. I've heard great reviews about that documentary. Um, I was a co-executive producer on the hornet's nest and they look at the deployments. I mean, I think that's what's particular about no greater love is that we're looking at the cause and effect You know, both the combat and what happened over there and the after effect of everything in the transition home. And that's what I was really wanting to do is kind of to, to look at, you know, both the cause and the effect of what happens in the midst of war. So that way, whenever people watch this film, they can say, I get it. I okay, this veteran who might have anger issues or might be just doing awesome. I at least understand a little bit about where he's coming from or she's coming from. And I understand a little bit about their experience. And so that if they do come back with PTSD or any kind of anger issues or struggles, you empathize more with why they're going through that. And you understand that it wasn't just because war is hell. No, usually it's because these individuals are also amazingly courageous and willing to make great sacrifices. Their hearts lead them into some of these tough places because they were working to do an amazingly courageous and, you know, selfless thing. And because of that, there is some struggles that come after. Um, So that way they would understand him away from the stereotype and actually understand him as a human being. And so that's
0: that was the the intent of the approach. And unfortunately, I don't think I knew about the film when it came out in November. Mm -hmm. How how many cities or theaters did it play in? It
1: went about to 20, 20 plus. You know, it's uh, we were going up against Thor Ragnarok which <laughs> has, I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars of marketing on it. Um, so we did good for a documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the landscape of film right now, you're going, when you go up against tent poles, which is there's like a tent pole almost every single month now. And so no matter what, it's hard. for Small films to get noticed and to become a part of the conversation in this country. So how do people watch your film now? Well, it's going to be on uh, March 27th. We're going to release the film out to DVD and direct download. And so, uh, if they just go over to our website, nogreaterlovemovie.com. That is nogreaterlovemovie.com. They can figure out, find out how to uh, get connected and uh, with the film to check it out. Or if they want to pre-order a DVD, they can pre-order a DVD. Uh, they can also find us on Facebook and follow because that's really how we're continuing to push the conversation out. And the difference between this as well is this is not just a mo- you know, movie. I mean, it's a part of a movement uh, to raise awareness. And so at the end of the film, we actually have it to where you will be able to donate. Uh, there's a promotion to go to our website, which is no forward slash give. And we have some national partners, veteran organizations that we've partnered with that people will be able to donate to or they can enter in their zip code to find a local veteran charity to support. And so our, oh, that's good. Yeah. That and so our hope it. is this any veteran organizations that are listening, we're hoping that they'll go to that website, no greater love for slash give and sign up to become one of those veteran organizations. So that way, whenever this film comes out onto DVD, you know, uh, direct download VOD, whenever they see it on cable, that, you know, audience members are going to be able to find those veteran organizations to donate to or to volunteer at. So that way we can all, you know, increase this
0: conversation and also increase the channels of support. Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely promote it through my channels. Uh, Is it ever going to be available on Netflix or Amazon video?
1: I I think so. I mean, it's a uh, I'm a a former chaplain and uh, not a former distributor. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so it's like, I, I, I know that that's a part of the life cycle of it, but I, I don't know the timetable on that. I just know like March 27th, we come out on, you know, direct download and DVD. And, you know, my hope is that, um, you know, people talk about it, people share links. And uh, so that way we can make sure that the film not only like raises a lot of awareness, but also raises support for our veterans.
0: What else about the movie or about you would you like to share? That's it.
1: I mean, like, it's now I'm just kind of continuing to work on films. I've transitioned into being a civilian. So I've gotten um, shaggy and uh, happy. <laughs> <laughs> you got rid of the clean cut look? Is that it? Yeah, no, it's like I've gotten kind of scruffy. But the, uh, yeah, I think the VA starts to issue us beards once we get out. But. Uh, <laughs> No, I mean like it's with this, I mean the number one goal is that we we don't just raise awareness, we raise people's awareness of our veterans as people, as human beings, just regular people. And that we share this experience of what it was like to deploy in this war. And if we can increase that awareness, what I've seen is you can't really increase support for a cause Until you humanize the issue and people understand it on a human level and they care about these people as individuals, not just a a people group or a statistic. And so that's the importance of this campaign. Mm -hmm. It's not just a movie. I mean, it's like our only vehicle for actually humanizing our veterans, you know, outside of you actually having a relationship with a veteran or service member. And uh, so that's how we pull the rest of America from just being a sideline participant in this war to being an active member and supporter of our service members and veterans. So that's my hope, you know, with this coming release. Past that? I'm not sure. What's the movie rated? R. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was, I, I took out as many cuss words as I could, but I still had to leave some in because uh, – uh, at some point, it, it would have just sounded weird if I added bleeps to it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of violence, and it's it's uh, the guys as they are, you know. I didn't pull punches on this. Um, actually, I, I did some. I mean, there's a lot more graphic stuff that I could have put into the film, but um, I didn't want the the shock of it all to overtake the message. But, you know, and the thing is, too, it's like what I tell, you know, some of the churches that have asked about the rating. I mean, I'm a chaplain and uh, I get where they're coming from on the ratings. You know, they worry about that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, if this movie is too much for a church, then they're never going to be able to be able to minister to a real veteran. They're just not going to have that ability. So my challenge is to you know some of the Christians who might be offended by the cuss words to experience this film as it is because if you really do want to care for a veteran this is how it is and uh, we can't clean them up before they come into the church so you just have to take people as they are and meet people as they are
0: yeah i understand so i thank you for sharing it sharing about the movie i look forward to seeing it i really wish i had known about it beforehand and i may have i just movies and and me just don't happen much i've got small kids so it's, (laughs) it's a rarity yeah, but I'll definitely would be buying it.
1: Not <laughs>
0: What's a, that? I'd say with
1: kids, this is probably maybe, you know, of course. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah definitely not. I, I started uh, Hacksaw Ridge. It was on TV months ago, and I started watching it, and I realized, okay, well, I can't watch this right now because my kids are here. And
1: No, I'm, I'm the same way, man. <laughs> you know, it's uh, I, I get tired after a while, and so I, I get a few movies here. You know, of course, I'm a movie buff. Um, that's how I got into all of this.
0: Well, thank you. It's been a privilege
1: and a pleasure. Absolutely. And so it, just again, for anybody who's listening, if they want to connect with us, um, for them to go to no greater uh, And uh, if they're a veteran organization to sign up on, on our give page to be able to take part in using this film, the only thing that we're doing is we're directing the audience to go to our give page. So that way, once they click the link to that veteran organization, it just, we just hand them off to that veteran organization. And uh, so that's our way of trying to raise awareness and support for these groups. And then to also
0: join us on Facebook so that way they can become a part of this conversation as we try to raise awareness and support. No problem. We'll, we'll promote this and, and thank you for sharing about it. And thank you for what you're doing for our warriors. And also really appreciate you serving our country as well. And for the job you're doing for the families, for the job you've done for the families big time. And and you're still continuing to serve. So much appreciation. Absolutely. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to my interview with Justin Roberts. The show notes will have the links that he spoke of for the movie and for the veterans organizations that you can connect with. I just want to ask one thing of you. Please go to my Patreon page. That would be Patreon patreon.com forward slash patriot to the core and read what I've got going on there. And it's an opportunity to, yes, to support financially, but really you get something in return so it makes you a patron and not just someone who's giving money. Yeah, I want to give you something back in return, but you can help the cause. So thank you very much. Bye.